Chapter 9 It was some two months later in the year, and the pair had met constantly during the interval. Arabella seemed dissatisfied. She was always imagining, and waiting, and wondering. One day, she met the itinerant Vilbert. She, like all the cottagers thereabout, knew the quack well, and she began telling him of her experiences. Arabella had been gloomy, but before he left her, she had grown brighter. That evening, she kept an appointment with Jude, who seemed sad. "'I am going away,' he said to her. "'I think I ought to go. I think it will be better for both you and for me. I wish some things had never begun. I was much to blame, I know, but it is never too late to mend.' Arabella began to cry. "'How do you know it is not too late?' she said. "'That's all very well to say. I haven't told you yet.' And she looked into his face with streaming eyes. "'What?' he asked, turning pale. "'Not?' "'Yes. And what shall I do if you desert me?' "'Oh, Arabella, how can you say that, my dear? You know I wouldn't desert you.' "'Well, then—' "'I have next to no wages as yet, you know. "'Or perhaps I should have thought of this before.' But of course, if that's the case, we must marry. What other thing do you think I could dream of doing? I thought, I thought, dearie, perhaps you would go away all the more for that and leave me to face it alone. You know better. Of course, I never dreamt six months ago, or even three, of marrying. It is a complete smashing up of my plans. I mean, my plans before I knew you, my dear. But... What are all they, after all? Dreams about books and degrees and impossible fellowships and all that? Certainly we'll marry. We must. That night he went out alone and walked in the dark, self-communing. He knew well, too well, in the secret center of his brain, that Arabella was not worth a great deal as a specimen of womankind. Yet, such being the custom of rural districts among honorable young men who had drifted so far into intimacy with a woman as he had unfortunately done, he was ready to abide by what he had said, and take the consequences. For his own soothing, he kept up a factitious belief in her. His idea of her was the thing of most consequence, not Arabella herself, he sometimes said laconically. The bands were put in and published the very next Sunday. The people of the parish all said what a simple young fool folly was. All his reading had only come to this— that he would have to sell his books to buy saucepans. Those who guessed the probable state of affairs, Arabella's parents being among them, declared that it was the sort of conduct they would have expected of an honest young man as Jude in reparation of the wrong he had done his innocent sweetheart. The parson who married them seemed to think it satisfactory, too. And so, standing before the aforesaid officiator, the two swore that at every other time of their lives till death took them, they would assuredly believe, feel, and desire precisely as they had believed, felt, and desired during the few preceding weeks. What was as remarkable as the undertaking itself was the fact that nobody seemed at all surprised at what they swore. Folly's aunt, being a baker, she made him a bride cake, saying bitterly that it was the last thing she could do for him, poor silly fellow, and that it would have been far better if— Instead of his living to trouble her, he had gone underground years before with his father and mother. Of this cake, Arabella took some slices, wrapped them up in white note paper, and sent them to her companions in the pork dressing business, Annie and Sarah, labeling each packet in remembrance of good advice. 
the prospects of the newly married couple were certainly not very brilliant, even to the most sanguine mind. He, a stonemason's apprentice, 19 years of age, was working for half wages till he could be out of his time. His wife was absolutely useless in a town lodging, where he at first had considered it would be necessary for them to live. But the urgent need of adding to income in ever so little a degree caused him to take a lonely roadside cottage between the brown house and Mary Green, that he might have the profits of a vegetable garden, and utilize her past experiences by letting her keep a pig. But it was not the sort of life he had bargained for, and it was a long way to walk to and from Alfredston every day. Arabella, however, felt that all these makeshifts were temporary. She had gained a husband. That was the thing. A husband with a lot of earning power in him for buying her frocks and hats when he should begin to get frightened a bit and stick to his trade and throw aside those stupid books for practical undertakings. So to the cottage he took her on the evening of the marriage, giving up his old room at his aunt's, where so much of the hard labor at Greek and Latin had been carried on. A little chill overspread him at her first unrobing. A long tail of hair, which Arabella wore twisted up in an enormous knob at the back of her head, was deliberately unfastened, stroked out, and hung upon the looking-glass which he had brought her. A little chill overspread him at her first unrobing. A long tail of hair, which Arabella wore twisted up in an enormous knob at the back of her head, was deliberately unfastened, stroked out, and hung upon the looking-glass which he had brought her. "'What? It wasn't your own?' he said, with a sudden distaste for her. "'No, oh, no. It never is nowadays with the better class.' "'Nonsense! Perhaps not in towns, but in the country it is supposed to be different. Besides, you've enough of your own, surely.' "'Yes, enough as country notions go, but in town the men expect more. "'And when I was barmaid at Aldbrickham—' "'Barmaid at Aldbrickham? "'Well, not exactly barmaid. "'I used to draw the drink at a public house there. "'Just for a little time, that was all. "'Some people put me up to getting this, and I bought it just for a fancy. "'The more you have, the better in Aldbrickham, "'which is finer town than all your Christminsters. "'Every lady of position wears false hair.' The barber's assistant told me so. Jude thought, with a feeling of sickness, that though this might be true to some extent, for all that he knew, many unsophisticated girls would and did go to towns and remain there for years without losing their simplicity of life and embellishments. Others, alas, had an instinct towards artificiality in their very blood and became adepts in counterfeiting at the first glimpse of it. However, perhaps there was no greater sin in a woman of adding to her hair, and he resolved to think no more of it. A new-made wife can usually manage to excite interest for a few weeks, even though the prospects of the household ways and means are cloudy. There is a certain piquancy about her situation, and her manner to her acquaintance at the sense of it, which carries off the gloom of facts, and renders even the humblest bride independent a while of the real. Mrs. Jude Folly was walking in the streets of Alfredston one market day, with this quality in her carriage when she met Annie, her former friend, whom she had not seen since the wedding. As usual, they laughed before talking. The world seemed funny to them without saying it. "'So it turned out a good plan, you see,' remarked the girl to the wife. 
I knew it would be with such as him. He's a dear good fellow, and you ought to be quite proud of him. I am, said Mrs. Foley quietly. And when do you expect... Shh, not at all. What? I was mistaken. Oh, Arabella, Arabella, you be a deep one, mistaken. Well, that's clever. It's a real stroke of genius. It is a thing I never thought. Oh, with all my experience. I never thought beyond bringing about the real thing, not that one could sham it. Don't be too quick to cry sham. T'wasn't sham. I didn't know. My word, won't he be in a taking? He'll give it to you a Saturday night. Whatever it was, he'll say it was a trick. A double one, by the Lord. I'll own to the first, but not to the second. Poof, he won't care. He'll be glad I was wrong in what I said. He'll shake down. Blessed men always do. What can he do otherwise? Married is married. Nevertheless, it was with a little uneasiness that Arabella approached the time when, in the natural course of things, she would have to reveal that the alarm she had raised had been without foundation. The occasion was one evening at bedtime, and they were in their chamber in the lonely cottage by the wayside to which Jude walked home from his work every day. He had worked hard the whole twelve hours and had retired to rest before his wife. When she came into the room, he was between sleeping and waking, and was barely conscious of her undressing before the little looking-glass as he lay. One action of hers, however, brought him to full cognition. Her face, being reflected towards him as, he, as she sat, he could perceive that she was amusing herself by artificially producing in each cheek the dimple before alluded to, a curious accomplishment of which she was mistress, affecting it by a momentary suction. It seemed to him for the first time that the dimples were far oftener absent from her face during his intercourse with her nowadays than they had been in the earlier weeks of their acquaintance. "'Don't do that, Arabella,' he said suddenly. "'There's no harm in it, but I don't like to see you.' She turned and laughed. "'Lord, I didn't know you were awake,' she said. "'How countrified you are. That's nothing. "'Where did you learn it?' Nowhere that I know of. They used to stay without any trouble when I was at the public house. But now they won't. My face was fatter then. I don't care about dimples. I don't think they... I don't think they improve a woman, particularly a married woman, and a full-size figure like you. Most men think otherwise. I don't care what most men think if they do. How do you know? I used to be told so when I was serving in the tap room. Ah, that public-house experience accounts for your knowing about that adulteration of the ale when we went and had some that Sunday evening. I thought when I married you that you had always lived in your father's house. You ought to have known better than that, and seen I was little more finished than I could have been by staying where I was born. There was not so much to do at home, and I was eating my head off, so I went away for three months. You'll soon have plenty to do now, dear, won't you? How do you mean... Why, of course, little things to make. Oh. When will it be? Can't you tell me exactly, instead of in such general terms as you have used? Tell you? Yes, the date. There's nothing to tell. I made a mistake. What? It was a mistake. He sat bolt upright in bed and looked at her. How can that be? Women fancy wrong things sometimes. But... Why, of course, 
so unprepared as I was, without a stick of furniture and hardly a shilling. I shouldn't have hurried on our affair, and it brought you to a half-furnished hut before I was ready. If it had been for the news you gave to me, which made it necessary for me to save you, ready or no, good God! Don't take on, my dear. What's done can't be undone. I have no more to say. He gave the answer simply and lay down, and there was silence between them. When Jude awoke the next morning, he seemed to see the world with a different eye. As to the point in question, he was compelled to accept her word. In the circumstances, he could not have acted otherwise, while ordinary notions prevailed. But how came they to prevail? There seemed to him, vaguely and dimly, something wrong in a social ritual which made necessary a cancelling of well-formed schemes involving years of thought and labor, of foregoing a man's one opportunity of showing himself superior to the lower animals, and of contributing his unit of work to the great progress of his generation, because of a momentary surprise by a new and transitory instinct, which had nothing in it of the nature of vice, and could only, at the most, be called weakness. He was inclined to inquire what he had done, or she lost, for that matter, that he deserved to be caught in a gin which would cripple him, if not for her also, for the rest of a lifetime. There was perhaps something fortunate in the fact that the immediate reason of his marriage had proved to be non-existent, but the marriage remained. Chapter 10 The time arrived for killing the pig which Jude and his wife had fattened in their sty during the autumn months, and the butchering was timed to take place as soon as it was light in the morning, so that Jude might get to Alfredston without losing more than a quarter of a day. The night had seemed strangely silent. Jude looked out of the window long before dawn, and perceived that the ground was covered with snow. Snow rather deep for the season, it seemed, a few flakes still falling. "'I'm afraid the pig-killer won't be able to come,' he said to Arabella. "'Oh, he'll come. You must get up and make the water hot if you want Shallow to scald him, though I like singeing best.' "'I'll get up,' said Jude. "'I like the way of my own county.' He went downstairs lit the fire under the copper, and began feeding it with beanstalks, all the while without a candle, the blaze flinging a cheerful shine into the room, though for him the sense of cheerfulness was lessened by the thoughts on the reason of that blaze, to heat water to scald the bristles from the body of an animal that as yet lived, and whose voice could be continually heard from a corner of the garden. At half-past six, the time of appointment with the butcher, the water boiled, and Jude's wife came downstairs. "'Is Shallow come?' she asked. "'No.' They waited, and it grew lighter with the dreary light of a snow dawn. She went out, gazed along the road, and returning said, "'He's not coming. Drunk last night, I expect. The snow is not enough to hinder him, surely.' "'Then we must put it off. It is only the water boiled for nothing. The snow may be deep in the valley. Can't be put off. There's no more victuals for the pig.' He ate the last mixing of barley mill yesterday morning. Yesterday morning? What has he lived off since? Nothing. Wait, he's been starving? Yes, we always do it the last day or two, to save bother with the innards. What ignorance to not know that. That accounts for his crying so, poor creature. Well, you must do the sticking. There's no help for it. I'll show you how. Or I could do it myself. I think I could. 
though, as it is such a big pig, I'd rather Chalo had done it. However, his basket of knives and things have been already sent on here, and we can use them. Of course you shan't do it, said Jude. I'll do it, since it must be done. He went out to the sty, shoveled away the snow for the space of a couple yards or more, and placed the stool in front, with the knives and ropes at hand. A robin peered down at the preparations from the nearest tree, and, not liking the sinister look of the scene, flew away, though hungry. By this time, Arabella had joined her husband, and Jude, rope in hand, got into the sty and noosed the frightened animal, who began with a squeak of surprise, rose to repeated cries of rage. Arabella opened the sty door, and together they hoisted the victim onto the stool, legs upward, and while Jude held him, Arabella bound him down, looping the cord over his legs to keep him from struggling. The animal's note changed its quality. It was not now rage, but the cry of despair, long drawn and slow and hopeless. "'Upon my soul, I would sooner have gone without the pig than had to have do this,' said Jude, "'a creature I have fed with my own hands.' "'Don't be such a tender-hearted fool. "'There's the sticking knife, the one with the point. "'Now whatever you do, don't stick him too deep. "'I'll stick him effectually as to make short work of it. "'That's the chief thing.' "'You must not,' she cried. "'The meat must be well bled, and to do that he must die slow. "'We shall lose a shilling a score if the meat is red and bloody. "'Just touch the vein, that's all. "'I was brought up to it, and I know. "'Every good butcher keeps him bleeding long.' He ought to be eight, ten minutes dying at least. He shall not be half a minute if I can help it, however the meat may look, said Jude determinedly. Scraping the bristles from the pig's upturned throat as he had seen butchers do, he slit the fat, then plunged the knife in with all his might. Oh, damn it all, she cried, that ever I should say it, you've overstuck him, and I'm telling you all the time, do be quiet, Arabella, and have a little pity on the creature. Hold up the pail, catch the blood, and don't talk. However unworkmanlike the deed, it had been mercifully done. The blood flowed out in a torrent instead of in a trickling stream she had desired. The dying animal's cry assumed its third and final tone, the shriek of agony, his glazing eyes riveting themselves on Arabella with the eloquently keen reproach of a creature recognizing at last the treachery of those who had seemed its only friends. "'Make it stop that,' said Arabella. "'Such a noise will bring somebody or other up here, "'and I don't want people to know we are doing it ourselves.' "'Picking up the knife from the ground where Jude had flung it, "'she slipped it into the gash and slit the windpipe. "'The pig was instantly silent, his dying breath coming through the hole. "'That's better,' she said. "'It is a hateful business,' said he. "'Pigs must be killed.' "'The animal heaved in a final convulsion, and, despite the rope, kicked out with all his last strength. A tablespoonful of black clock came forth, and trickling the red blood having ceased for some seconds. "'That's it. Now he'll go,' said she. Artful creatures. They always keep back a drop like that as long as they can. The last plunge had come so unexpectedly as to make Jude stagger, and in recovering himself he kicked over the vessel in which the blood had been caught. "'There!' she cried thoroughly in a passion. Now I can't make any black pot. That's a waste all through you. Jude put the pail upright, but only about a third of the whole steaming liquid was left in it, the main part being splashed over the snow and forming a dismal, sordid, 
ugly spectacle to those who saw it as other than an ordinary obtaining of meat. The lips and nostrils of the animal turned livid, then white, and the muscles of his limbs relaxed. Thank God, Jude said, he's dead. What's God got to do with such a messy job as a pig killing, I should like to know, she said scornfully. Poor folks must live. I know, I know, said he. I don't scold you. Suddenly they became aware of a voice at hand. Well done, young married folk. I couldn't have carried it out much better myself, cuss me if I could. The voice, which was husky, came from the garden gate, and looking up from the scene of slaughter, they saw the burly form of Mr. Challow leaning over the gate, critically surveying their performance. "'Tis well free to stand there and glane," said Arabella. "'Owing to being late, the meat is bloodied and half-spoilt. Won't fetch much but a shilling a score.' Challow expressed his contrition. "'You should have waited a bit,' he said, shaking his head. "'And not have done this in the delicate state, too, that you be in at present, ma'am. "'Tis risking yourself too much.' "'You needn't be concerned about that,' said Arabella, laughing. Jude, too, laughed, but there was a strong flavor of bitterness in his amusement. Chalo made up for his neglect of the killing by zeal in the scalding and scraping. Jude felt dissatisfied with himself as a man at what he had done, though aware of his lack of common sense, and that the deed would have amounted to the same thing if carried out by deputy.' the white snow, stained with the blood of his fellow-mortal, wore an illogical look to him as a lover of justice, not to say a Christian, but he could not see how the matter was to be mended. No doubt he was, as his wife had called him, a tender-hearted fool. He did not like the road to Alfredston now. It stared him cynically in the face. The wayside objects reminded him so much of his courtship with his wife that, to keep them out of his eyes, he read whatever he could as he walked to and from his work. Yet he sometimes felt that by caring for books he was not escaping commonplace, nor gaining rare ideas, every workman being of that taste now. When passing near the spot by the stream on which he had first made her acquaintance, he one day heard voices just as he had done at that earlier time. One of the girls who had been Arabella's companions was talking to a friend in a shed, himself being the subject of discourse, Possibly because they had seen him in the distance, they were quite unaware that the shed walls were so thin, and that he could hear their words as he passed. Howsomever, twas I put her up to it. Nothing venture nothing have, I said. If I hadn't, she'd no more have been as missus than I. Tis my belief she knew there was nothing the matter when she told him she was. What had Arabella been put up to by this woman, so that he should make her his missus, otherwise wife? The suggestion was horridly unpleasant, and it rankled in his mind so much, that instead of entering his own cottage when he reached it, he flung his basket inside the garden gate and passed on, determined to go and see his old aunt and get some supper there. This made his arrival home rather late. Arabella, however, was busy melting down lard from fat of the deceased pig, for she had been out on a jaunt all day, and so delayed her work. Dreading lest what he had heard should lead him to say something regrettable to her, he spoke little, but Arabella was very talkative. She said, among other things, that she wanted some money, 
Seeing the book sticking out of his pocket, she added that he ought to earn more. An apprentice wages are not meant to be enough to keep a wife on as a rule, my dear. Then you shouldn't have had one. Come, Arabella, that's too bad when you know how it came about. I'll declare for heaven that I thought what I told you was true. Dr. Vilbert thought so. It was a good job for you that it wasn't so. I didn't mean that, he said hastily. I meant before that time. I know it was not your fault, but those women friend of yours gave you bad advice. If they hadn't, or if you hadn't taken it, we should at this moment have been free from a bond which, not to mince matters, galls both of us devilishly. It may be very sad, but it is true. Who's been telling you about my friends? What advice? I insist upon you telling me. Pugh, I'd rather not. But you shall. You want to. It is mean of you not to. Very well. And he hinted gently what had been revealed to him. But I don't wish to dwell upon it. Let us say no more about it. Her defensive manner collapsed. That was nothing, she said, laughing coldly. Every woman has a right to do such as that. The risk is hers. I quite deny it, Bella. She might, if no lifelong penalty attached to it for the man, or, in his default, for, the, for herself, if the weakness of the moment could end with the moment, or even with the year. But when effects stretch so far, she should not go and do that which entraps a man if he is honest, or herself if he is otherwise. What ought to I have done? Given me time. Why do you fuss yourself about melting down that pig's fat tonight? Please put it away. Then I must do it tomorrow morning. It won't keep. Very well, do. Chapter 11 Next morning, which was Sunday, she resumed operations about ten o'clock, and the renewed work recalled the conversation which had accompanied it the night before and put her back into the same irretractable temper. That's a story about me and Mary Green, is it? That I entrapped ye? Much of a catch you were, Lord Send. As she warmed, she saw some of Jude's dear ancient classics on a table where they ought not to have been laid. I won't have them books here in the way, she cried petulantly, and seizing them one by one, she began throwing them upon the floor. Leave my books alone, he said. You might have thrown them aside if you had liked, but as to soiling them like that, it is disgusting. In the operation of making lard, Arabella's hands had become smeared with the hot grease, and her fingers consequently left very perceptible imprints on the book covers. She continued deliberately to toss the books severely upon the floor, till Jude, incensed beyond bearing, caught her by the arms to make her leave off. Somehow, in doing so, he loosened the fastening of her hair, and it rolled about her shoulders. "'Let me go,' she said. "'Promise to leave the books alone,' she hesitated. "'Let me go,' she repeated. "'Promise,' after a pause. "'I do.' Jude relinquished his hold, and she crossed the room to the door, out of which she went with a set face and onto the highway. Here she began to saunter up and down, perversely pulling her hair into a worse disorder than he had caused, and unfastening several buttons of her gown. It was a fine Sunday morning, dry, clear, and frosty, and the bells of Alfredston Church could be heard on the breeze from the north. 
people were going along the road, dressed in their holiday clothes. They were mainly lovers, such pairs as Jude and Arabella had been when they spotted along the same track some months earlier. These pedestrians turned to stare at the extraordinary spectacle she now presented, bonnetless, her disheveled hair blowing in the wind, her bodice apart, her sleeves rolled above her elbows for her work, and her hands reeking with melted fat. One of the passers said in mock terror, "'Good Lord, deliver us!' "'See how he served me?' she cried, "'making me work Sunday mornings when I ought to be going to my church, "'and tearing my hair off my head and my gown off my back.' Jude was exasperated and went out to drag her in by main force. Then he suddenly lost his heat. Illuminated with the sense that all was over between them, and that it mattered not what she did, or he, her husband stood still regarding her. Their lives were ruined, he thought, ruined by the fundamental error of their matrimonial union, that of having based a permanent contract upon a temporary feeling which had no necessary connection with affinities that alone render a lifelong comradeship tolerable. Going to ill-use me on principle, as your father ill-used your mother and your father's sister ill-used her husband, she asked. All you be a queer lot as husbands and wives. Jude fixed an arrested, surprised look on her, but she said no more and continued her saunter till she was tired. He left the spot, and after wandering vaguely a little while, walked in the direction of Mary Green. Here he called upon his great-aunt, whose infirmities daily increased. "'Aunt, did my father ill-use my mother, and my aunt her husband?' said Drude abruptly, sitting down by the fire. She raised her ancient eyes under the rim of bygone bonnet that she always wore. "'Who's been telling you that?' she said. "'I have heard it spoke of, and want to know all. "'You may be so well, I suppose, though your wife, I reckon, twas she.' must have been a fool to open up that. There isn't much to know, after all. Your father and mother couldn't get on together, and they parted. It was coming home from Alfredston Market when you were a baby, on the hill by the Brown House barn, that they had their last difference, and took leave of one another for the last time. Your mother soon afterwards died. She drowned herself, in short, and your father went away with you to South Wessex, and never came here any more." Jude recalled his father's silence about North Wessex and Jude's mother, never speaking of either till his dying day. "'Twas the same with your father's sister. Her husband offended her, and she so disliked living with him afterwards that she went away to London with her little maid. The follies were not made for wedlock. It never seemed to sit well upon us. There's some in our blood that won't take kindly to the notion of being bound to do what we do readily enough if not bound. That's why you ought to have hearkened to me and not a married. Where did father and mother part? By the brown house, you say? A little further on, where the road to Fenwood branches off and the hand post stands. A gibbet once stood there, not unconnected with our history, but let that be. In the dusk of that evening, Jude walked away from his old aunt's as if to go home. But as soon as he reached the open down, he struck out upon it till he came to a large round pond. The frost continued, though it was not particularly sharp, and the larger stars overhead came out slow and flickering. Jude put one foot on the edge of the ice, and then the other. It cracked under his weight, but this did not deter him. He plowed his way inward to the center, the ice making sharp noises as he went. When just about the middle, he looked round himself, 
and gave a jump. The cracking repeated itself, but he did not go down. He jumped again, but the cracking had ceased. Jude went back to the edge and stepped upon the ground. It was curious, he thought. What was he reserved for? He supposed he was not a sufficiently dignified person for suicide. Peaceful death abhorred him as a subject and would not take him. What could he do of a lower kind than self-extermination? What was there less noble, more in keeping with his present degraded position? He could get drunk. Of course, that was it. He had forgotten. Drinking was the regular stereotyped resource of the despairing worthless. He began to see now why some men boozed at inns. He struck down the hill northwards, and came to an obscure public house. On entering and sitting down, the sight of the picture of Samson and Delilah on the wall caused him to recognize the place as that he had visited with Arabella on that first Sunday evening of their courtship. He called for liquor and drank briskly for an hour or more. Staggering homeward late that night, with all his sense of depression gone, and his head fairly clear still, he began to laugh boisterously, and to wonder how Arabella would receive him in his new aspect. The house was in darkness when he entered, and in his stumbling state it was some time before he could get a light. Then he found that, though the marks of pig-dressing, of fats and scallops were visible, the material themselves had been taken away. A line written by his wife on the inside of an old envelope was pinned to the cotton-blower of the fireplace. Have gone to my friends, shall not return. All the next day he remained at home, and sent off the carcass of the pig to Alfredston. He then cleaned up the premises, locked the door, put the key in a place she would know if she came back, and returned to his masonry at Alfredston. At night, when he plodded home, he found she had not visited the house. The next day went in the same way, and the next. Then there came a letter from her. That she had got tired of him, she frankly admitted. He was such a slow old coach, and she did not care for the sort of life he led. There was no prospect of his ever bettering himself or her. She further went on to say that her parents had, as he knew for some time, considered the question of emigrating to Australia, the pig-jabbing business being poor one nowadays. They had at last decided to go, and she proposed to go with them, if he had no objections. A woman of her sort would have more chance over there than in this stupid country. Jude replied that he had not the least objection to her going. He thought it a wise course, since she wished to go, and one that might be to advantage of both. He enclosed in the packet containing the letter the money that had been realized with the sale of the pig, with all he had besides, which was not much. From that day he heard no more of her except indirectly, though her father and his household did not immediately leave, but waited till his goods and other effects had been sold off. When Jude learned that there was to be an auction at the house of the Dons, he packed his own household goods into a wagon and sent them to her at the aforesaid homestead, that she might sell them with the rest, or as many of them as she could choose. He then went into lodgings at Alfredston, and saw in a shop window the little handbill announcing the sale of his father-in-law's furniture. He noted its date, which came and passed without Jude's going near the place were perceiving that the traffic out of Alfredston by the southern road was materially increased by the auction. A few days later he entered a dingy broker's shop in the main street of the town, and amid a heterogeneous collection of saucepans, a clothes horse, a rolling pin, brass candlestick, 
swing-looking glass, and other things at the back of the shop, evidently just brought in from a sale, he perceived a framed photograph, which turned out to be his own portrait. It was one which he had specially taken and framed by a local man in bird's-eye maple, as a present for Arabella, and had duly given her on their wedding day. On the back was still to be read, Jude to Arabella, with the date. She must have thrown it in with the rest of her property at the auction. Oh, said the broker, seeing him look at this and the other articles in the heap, and not perceiving that the portrait was of himself. It is a small lot of stuff that was knocked down to me at a cottage sale out on the road to Marygreen. The frame is a very useful one if you take out the likeness. You shall have it for a shilling. The utter death of every tender sentiment in his wife, as brought home to him by this mute and undesigned evidence of her sale of this portrait and gift, was the conclusive little stroke required to demolish all sentiment in him. He paid the shilling, took the photograph away with him, and burnt it, frame and all, when he reached his lodging. Two or three days later he heard that Arabella and her parents had departed. He had sent message offering to see her for a formal leave-taking, but she had said that it would be better otherwise, since she was bent on going, which perhaps was true. On the evening following their emigration, when his day's work was done, he came out of doors after supper, and strolled in the starlight along the too familiar road towards the upland whereon had been experienced the chief emotions of his life. It seemed to be his own again. He could not realize himself. On the old track he seemed to be a boy still, hardly a day older than when he had stood dreaming at the top on that hill, inwardly fired for the first time with ardors for Christminster and scholarship. "'Yet I am a man,' he said. "'I have a wife. More, I arrived at the still riper stage of having disagreed with her, disliked her, had a scuffle with her, and parted from her.' He remembered then that he was standing not far from the spot at which the parting between his father and his mother was said to have occurred. A little further on was the summit whence Christminster, or what he had taken for that city, had seemed to be visible. A milestone, now as always, stood at the roadside hard by. Jude drew near it, and felt rather than read the mileage to the city. He remembered that once on his way home he had proudly cut with his keen new chisel an inscription on the back of that milestone, embodying his aspirations. It had been done in the first week of his apprenticeship, before he had been diverted from his purposes by an unsuitable woman. He wondered if the inscription was legible still, and, going to the back of the milestone, brushed away the nettles. By the light of a match he could still discern what he had cut so enthusiastically long ago. Thither, J.F., with a hand pointing towards that city. The sight of it, unimpaired, within its screen of grass and nettles, lit in his soul a spark of the old fire. Surely his plan should be to move onward through good and ill, to avoid morbid sorrow, even though he did see ugliness in the world. Bene eger et letare, to do good cheerfully, which he had heard to be the philosophy of one Spinoza might be his own even now. He might battle with his evil star and follow out his original intention. By moving to a spot a little way off he uncovered the horizon in a northeasterly direction. There actually rose the faint halo, a small dim nebulousness, hardly recognizable save by the eye of faith, 
it was enough for him. He would go to Christminster as soon as the term of his apprenticeship expired. He returned to his lodgings in a better mood and said his prayers.